Right, so we're in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and as we mentioned throughout, he's addressing problems, so it's one problem after another, and he's he started off with problems related to this unity, and he's touching on that again here in connection with the miraculous gifts that are the Holy Spirit has given out to the church. And the last time we were together, we're going through the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about the church as being like the human body that has different parts in it. And it's a beautiful picture that he gives that there's all these different parts. There's the eye and the ear and the nose and the feet. And, but they all work together, the presentable parts, the less presentable parts, but they all work together to, for, uh, to be unified. So it gives us uh, some, some inspiration to see I'm part of the body of Christ. I don't have to compare myself with other parts. I just have to be the best, whatever part that I am. And, and may God work together to bring about unity in the midst of diversity. It's not about, com- about complete conformity to, to, uh, to be like one another. So... Uh, uh, and, and there should be no sense of envy or jealousy or competitiveness within the body of Christ. He's talked about how when one part is honored, the whole body rejoices, and when one part suffers, the whole part, the whole body suffers along with it. So it's not, it's not a selfish thing. It's we, we all love each other. We're all caring about each other together. So we're going to pick up on that. And first, of all, I, I ended up in First Corinthians. Uh, uh, we ended in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. I'm going to start reading verse 27, which is kind of the, uh, the beginning of the, the, the end of that particular passage right there that we left off with. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members of it and, and, and members individually. So this is, uh, he's saying that uh, human body is a type or a figure of the church, and each of us individually are members or parts of it, just like there are parts of the body, the eye, the ear, the nose, the feet, as mentioned before. Okay? I've got a curveball question for you. Okay? Uh, two days ago, I would have answered the question differently than, than I'm answer, answering it today, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you in on that. Here, here's the question. All right? Famous passage by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he's talking about the church as being like a body composed of many parts. Okay, here's my question. Does, did Jesus teach anything like that anywhere? That the church was like a body made of many parts? Or is this something that, that Paul is the first person to introduce that? Okay. Now, if you asked me two days ago, I would have said, oh, this is this, Jesus never taught anything about that. This is, this is strictly, Holy Spirit gave this to Paul. And uh, I was reading, uh, Tom Kruger uh, uh, picked up a book from me I was looking for. A lot of you don't realize that in the course of preaching through material, I, ha- I, I leave with a lot of unanswered questions and it forces me, it's like I'm haunted by past lessons that I've taught where I, I have questions that are open and I have to, I'm pursuing, I'm, so I'm going down these unusual paths after. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a passage in a prior lesson quite a while ago and somebody had said that uh, this, this guy, Theophylact, never heard of him before, who was a, uh, 
he, he lived in the 11th century. So he's, this is writing around the year 1090. He was in the Eastern Roman Empire. And then he, so he was, he was in Constantinople. And then he, he ended up being a bishop in Bulgaria. So this is a guy who's well known in the Greek world today and in the Slavic speaking world today, which cuts me completely out because I have nothing, no, no ancestry in that part of the world at all. But so he's, he's well known to a certain small universe. So, uh, so I asked Tom to pick up at the, the Holy Cross book, bookstore uh, this, this work called um, An Explanation of the Holy Gospel According to Matthew. So basically it's a commentary on Matthew that was written about a thousand years ago. Now, I hate commentaries, and I tell everybody, don't read commentaries, but I wanted to find out what this guy said here, because somebody else in the 1500s had referred back to him, and I wanted to read it for myself. And so I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, wow, this is really good. This, is, this guy has great insights, and it's obvious that he's read a lot of earlier writers, much earlier writers, and is processing this. And he's, in some cases, he's identifying, well, some people believe this, but others believe that. And then in other cases, he's a little stronger in, in terms of what he says. So, but he's also, he gives some illustrations and some insights that I had never run into before. And I thought, you know, these actually make a lot of sense to me. And it starts me thinking and it's pushed me. And so I was thanking Tom for that. And he said, uh, he said, I think it was this week, he said, well, I hope that you're going to be able to share some of that in lessons that you're preaching. So it didn't take very long. So my, this, this, I just stumbled on this yesterday. It had nothing to do with my preparation for the lesson, but it really fits together. So I'm, I'm going to read something that he said, and then I want, I want you to think about it, because this definitely threw me for a loop. All right? this is, uh, so his commentary on Matthew, this is chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, 28, 29, I'm sorry, 29, 30. So, and the quote is here from the King James Version here. Um, it says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it's profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into Gehenna. So far, so good. He's just quoting the scripture. All right, and I, I modernized the King James a little bit there. And now his explanation, which totally threw me for a loop. He says, When you hear eye and hand, do not imagine the Lord is speaking in parts of the body. For he would not in that case have specified right eye and right hand. He's speaking instead of those who appear to be friends, but who were in fact harming us. Take, for example, a young man who has friends living in debauchery and who is harmed by their bad influence. Cut these off from you, the Lord says, and perhaps you will also save them when they come to their senses. If you cannot save them, you will at least save yourself. But if you continue in your affection for them, both you and they will be destroyed. Now, I never heard anything like that before. And, and I just, just didn't swallow it, but I, I stopped and I thought about, it. does that make any sense at all? And, and I, was, I was working on it, working on it, and then I went back to similar passage in Mark chapter 9. Let's, let's turn there and think about this. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. This all connected with the body being of many parts. The body referring to the church. In Mark chapter 9, 
Verse 42, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life main rather than having two hands be going to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It goes on from there. So, so think about that. He's talking about one person causing another to sin. And then he gives this illustration. Well, if, if the right hand caused you to sin, cut it off. Does the hand represent another person? Okay? So just I'm just throwing it out there. And, and as I was thinking about this, I was wondering, you know, Theophylact is writing in the 11th century. That's pretty late. Okay? I'm, compared to the people I'm usually reading. I'm wondering, I wonder, are there any early Christians, like pre-Nicene Christians, before the Council of Nicaea 325, any early Christians who comment on this passage of Matthew 5 and say the same thing. I, I could find two early Christians who reference this passage. Uh, the first one was in uh, Clement of Alexandria. He had a very conventional explanation. I use this passage a great deal when I'm de- dealing with the sins of sexual immorality, pornography, masturbation, and immorality, when I'm talking to young men. Okay, to say, look, you need to have the intensity that you would be willing to cut your hand off or gouge your eye out rather than to get into this sin. And I don't see any members missing of your body. So I think you're lacking some intensity about this sin that Jesus is talking about, a sin that's going to send you to hellfire. So, and, and Clement of Alexandria, and I seen Fathers, volume 2, page uh, 288, he was. He was making what I would say a conventional explanation as I've always understood the passage in the same way, is that he says, you know, you've got to deal with the sin. The sin, your eye can lead you into all kinds of sin, and you need to, you need to deal with this that, 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 uh, to, to make sure that you don't get pulled down into sexual sin. However, I stumbled. There was one other early Christian writer who commented on this passage. And this was a writer I'd never run into before, or it's, it's a writing about somebody I didn't know. It's called the, the work that's called the, uh, the Acts of Peter. This is not Peter the Apostle. This is Peter, who is a famous bishop in Alex, of the church Alexandria in Egypt, who was living in the early 300s. His ministry was then. Uh, he's written up by Eusebius as being a very holy man. He was beheaded, so he's not only a bishop, but he's also a martyr. And, and, and this work of, you know, it's like the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of Peter, but this is Peter the bishop. And he had, as an account of him, and dealing with heresy in the church. And uh, there was a, an, a follower of someone named Malicious, and of course Arius, who's well known for Arian, Arian heresy. So listen to this account of the confrontation between this bishop Peter and these heretics. He said, meanwhile, the detestable wickedness of the Malatians increased beyond measure. And the blessed Peter, this is Peter the bishop, all right, fearing lest the plague of heresy should spread over the whole flock, committed to his care, and knowing that there's no fellowship with light and darkness and no concord between Christ and Belial, 
by letter separated the militians from the communion of the church. And because of an evil disposition cannot long be concealed upon the instant the wicked Arius, when he saw his aiders and abettors cast down from the dignity of the church, gave way to sadness and lamentation. This did not escape the notice of this holy man, referring to Peter. For when his hypocrisy was laid bare immediately, using the evangelical sword... If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. And cutting off Arius from the body of the church as a putrid limb, he expelled and banished him from the communion of the faithful. So you, you follow what he's saying there. This is like a, it's like a gangrenous limb on the church, Arius of the heresy. And he applied the discipline of the church of cutting him off to save the body of the church from this member and applying what Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 5 if your right hand caused you to sin uh, you know to, to cast it from you so that's uh, in Essene Fathers volume 6 page 262 and I'll put the reference in, in the notes there so the bottom line to me is um, we can look at the church as a body and there are many things to gain from it. One is that we all want to help each other out in the body. The, 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 the hands aren't fighting against each other. We're all, all the parts of the body are working together in love. If one part is exalted, the whole body rejoices together. There's no selfishness. There's no competitiveness in the body of Christ. On the other hand, if your hand has gangrene, okay, what do you do? Do you just let the entire body die as a result so that the whole body is going to face destruction? Or might you have to sever a hand off to save the body as this Bishop Peter did here? So there's multiple ways you can look at this. And to me, Theophilact's explanation of the Matthew 5 passage actually can make sense. So you can use it either, either way you want. I just want to at least expose that to you to the idea that Jesus very well and I can see it more clearly in the Matthew 9 passage, maybe talking, maybe using a very similar illustration here to the one that Paul is using about a person leading you into sin. And, and the point that, that, that to be made is, you know, bad company corrupts good character. Isn't this the same point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 5 where he says, a little yeast leavens the whole loaf. You need to expel the wicked person from among you because it's going to penetrate and corrupt and destroy the entire church if you're not careful about who you're associating with and applying discipline in the church. So just a, a, little, a little, little side note there, something I stumbled on, wanted to share with everybody. Uh, let's continue 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 28. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak with languages, with, with tongues? Do all interpret? but earnestly desire the best gifts, and I'll show you a more excellent way. So, um, she gives 
a list of several different roles in the church, and most, maybe all, I'm not sure, but certainly most of these involved some kind of miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said in John 14 and John 16, the apostles, that after he left, that the Holy Spirit would, would come down and would guide them into, would lead them into all truth and teach them all things and would remind them of everything that, that, that he, had, he had said. So the Holy Spirit was working miraculously in the lives of the apostles as well as their ability to perform miracles, which we see in the book of Acts and elsewhere. The, the prophets of someone who's speaking, proclaiming the word of God uh, is inspired directly by the Spirit. Workers of miracles, obviously, those who have the gift of healing, those who are speaking in tongues, go to Acts chapter, if you go to Acts chapter 2, verses 4 to 11, it talked about they were speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, and the people from all the different nations said they heard them speaking the wonders of God in their own languages, despite the fact that they're from all these different countries. So these were uh, understandable languages here. Uh, or the gift of interpreting tongues. So all the, these things are definitely miraculous manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Teaching, I don't know, you know if teaching is referring to somebody who has a miraculous gift of teaching or somebody who's just a teacher in the church. But most or all these are miraculous gifts. And this is in the midst of discussion about gifts that were given by the Holy Spirit to the church. This passage here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and, and, and particularly the ending here, reminds me a lot of passage in Ephesians chapter 4. We read, last time we were in, in chapter 12, we read through part of that. I want to read a little longer passage from Ephesians chapter 4 and ask yourself, what are the parallels between this passage and 1 Corinthians 12? Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. So you notice here, here again, he's talking about unity in the church and also diversity in the church. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you've called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended to the lower parts of the earth? And who descended... And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for edifying the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knitted together 
by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So, parallels here. He's talking about the unity, about one body, about all these parts. Here he's talking about the different joints, the joints that are fitting together and working together. And then there's also the list. He's the first apostle. The apostles is first on the list, and the prophets is second. And he mentions teachers as well. So to me, these two passages go together. He's talking about similar things. The gifts, the diversity, the unity, the church is being like a body made of many parts that are working together in love. Uh, Clement Alexandria wrote about these two passages together. And actually, I think it has some bearing on some modern controversies and challenges among us. So, Clement Alexandria, this is, a, a, I'm reading from a passage taken from uh, Stromata Miscellanies, Book 4, Chapter 21, NIC and Fathers, Volume 2, page 433. He says, see, so he mentions both Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 together. He says, since the omnipotent God himself gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 13. We just read that. We are then to strive to reach manhood as befits the one who knows God. And to be as perfect as we can while still abiding in the flesh, making it our study with perfect concord here to concur with the will of God in the restoration of what is the truly perfect nobleness and relationship to the fullness of Christ, that which perfectly depends on our perfection. Perfection means completion. Okay, and now we perceive where and how and when the divine apostle mentions the perfect man and how he shows the differences of the perfect. And again, on the other hand, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to us for our profit. For to one is given the word of wisdom by the Spirit, another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, another faith through the same Spirit, another gifts of healing through the same Spirit, another the working of miracles to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to one of the diversities of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues, all these things work, one in the same spirit, distributing to each according to his, his will. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 11. There, so he's, he's joining these two passages together in discussion. Such being the case, the prophets are perfect in prophecy, the righteous in righteousness, the martyrs in confession, others in preaching, not that they are not sharers in the common virtues, but they are proficient in those which they are appointed. For what man in his sense would say that a prophet was not righteous? Or what did the righteous, uh, did not the righteous man like Abraham prophesy? So it's saying that you have your different gifts, but you can't say, well, I'm, I'm a specialist in prophecy. I'm, I'm going to leave righteousness to somebody else. We've all got to be righteous, okay? This is the point he's making there. But each, each, one, each one has his proper gift of God. One in one way, another in another, but the apostles were perfected in all. You will find then, if you choose, in their acts and writings, knowledge, life, 
preaching, righteousness, purity, and prophecy. So, I want you to notice something here. When he says he mentions apostles in the discussion, and then his conclusion is, let's look to the example of the apostles. He says the apostles were perfected in all. You'll find if you choose their acts and writings, knowledge, life, preaching, righteousness, purity, and prophecy. So, uh, this, this may sound like a really dumb question. Um, when, when, when the Bible talks about there were apostles, and they're listed first in Ephesians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 12, in both lists, okay? Do we have apostles among us today? Or are we supposed to be led by apostles today? Okay? Brother Dan Tellinghast, I think he knows the answer to that question there. <laughs> so there was a, yeah, uh, and I mean, to me, it's like, well, what a dumb question. But, but actually, uh, there, there was, a, there was a, a very well-known book in Christian circles. It's called The Permanent Revolution by, by two authors. And um, uh, the thesis of the book, and now the term, the term apostle, it's a general term that means sent out. But a lot of terms in Scripture are general terms that that receive a new meaning in the scriptures. For example, um, words like baptism, elder. Elder is just an old man, but elder in the scripture in context would be an officer in the church, an overseer, a shepherd. These are common words, but they're given new meaning in the New Testament. The apostles, the ones that are sent out throughout the New Testament, you know, it's, it's often used to describe the 12 apostles, Sometimes it's used to describe additional men like Paul, uh, uh, like Paul, like James, other, other men who personally were with Jesus and were witnesses to the resurrection of Christ and took that message out to the world. But Clement is talking about past tense, about the apostles. He said, you know, we can look to them and to their writings. So this was not an office that continued in the church. The uh, the, the argument made by the author of the, uh, the Prime Revolution, which is very popular, all these, all these four or five star reviews on Amazon, the only people who panned it were the few people who knew anything about church history, who just, who just uh, took it apart. So the thesis was that Ephesians 4, when it talks about the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, which which creates the delightful acronym APEST or a pest, all right? So that's, that's the, the uh, it's the APEST. And say, well, this is how the church is supposed to be structured. The apostles, the prophets, second, the, uh, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, that's the way the church is supposed to be. Now, the people who were personally discipled by the apostles knew nothing of this. Their attitude was the apostles were commissioned and sent out by Jesus, and after they died... It was handed over to bishops and elders in the church. And after all, Paul gives Timothy very clear instructions about that. And we see that in, in 1 Timothy and in Titus about, about the elders in the church. We see in Acts chapter 20. We see it in 1 Peter. So the church was turned over to the apostles, from the apostles to the bishops and the elders in the church. So the thesis was that the entire church went off the rails immediately. Okay. And this important role of apostle, which we haven't had since the first century, 
has been the missing ingredient. And what we need to do if we want to evangelize the world is we need to go back and use that model in Ephesians chapter 4 and have apostles once again leading the church. And it just so happens that these men will have the attributes of people who are like venture capitalists who will go out and you know, stir things up and get people excited and, and, and pump up and create new churches. And people who are hungry for evangelism and want to see the world evangelized, they know something's wrong. And they think, hey, maybe this is the, the this guy's, this is a really well-written book. Maybe this is, maybe this provides the explanation. But that's not what the New Testament teaches at all. It's taken out of context. So uh, this is not the, the, the missing secret sauce that, you know, just was, was, it just vanished from the face of the earth in the, in the first century, and then boom, somebody in the somebody in the, the 20th or 21st century discovers what the church has missed for 1,900 years. And I want to put it back by taking one verse out of context. But the early Christians understood the apostles were people commissioned by Jesus, and after they died, that's the end of the apostles, right? They're, they're succeeded by bishops and elders. So let's continue here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 31, it says, but eagerly, after he says, you know, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all, do all have these different gifts? The answer is, is a rhetorical question. The answer is no. He says, verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And this is the famous, famous passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have a faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Though I bestow all my gifts, my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know a part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This famous passage about the importance of love. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't know if Allison was in the room or not, but... Uh, Allison was, said, said, Chuck, I want to see you preach this passage on the love of Christ, the love of God, the importance of the love of God, because you're very comfortable preaching on the fear of God, but what about this side here? And, 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 and 
partial defense of myself on this. Um, my desire, a lot of times, is to, is to fill in the holes and the gaps that are not taught generally. So churches are filled with, with lots of discussions about God loves you and don't you love God and the grace of God. But how much, how much is there about the fear of God, really? Hardly any. Jesus talked a lot about the fear of God. Peter says, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So I'm thinking, you know, I want to I add things that people aren't getting other places, like, you know, the Old Testament, three quarters of the Bible, the fear of God, and other themes. So in expository teaching, we'll talk about a lot of things. They're, they're not, not so common. Everybody talks about God loves you and don't you love God. Uh, a, a, few, a, few, a few comments about that, okay? Um, one of them is, I'm sure at some point in your life, most of the people in this room have heard a sermon where somebody who probably didn't know any Greek said, the word that's used here in 1 Corinthians 13 for love is agape. And agape is a wonderful, special word in Greek that the Greek has, has all these different ways of, of explaining love, and there's eros for erotic love, and there's phileo for friendship love, there's storge, some other kind of love, and there's agape. Agape is the, the pinnacle. That's the, that's the highest, most selfless form of love, and that's what he's calling us to, the agape love. Now, how many people have ever heard messages like that before? Okay, <laughs> that's about half the room, all right? This is, it's all over the place. It's the Catholic churches, Protestant churches, Anabaptist churches. It's all over. Uh, let me demolish that with two shots, all right? And you can check this out for yourself at home. You don't need to read the Septuagint. You can, you can check this out with, with any interlinear New Testament Bible. You can, you can uh, find one online. John 12, 42 to 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praises of men more than the praise of God. So these are the cowards who were, loved the praises of men more than the praise of God. What do you think the Greek word that's used in that passage is? It's agape. They loved the praises of men. Worse, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. They have forced, talking about the corrupt people who crept into the church. It says they have forsaken the right way and have gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Guess what word is used for that? That Peter selects there in, in 2 Peter uh, Chapter 2. It's, it's agape. So does agape mean, has a special Greek word that means some high, lofty, selfless form of love? No, obviously not. I can give you a lot more examples too. So that's not true. It, it, means, it means pretty much the same thing as our English word. Love. So, you, so you, it's not like you have some big advantage by knowing Greek in this passage here. It's when he's talking about love, you can talk about love you know, you love sin, or you love the praises of men, or you love God, or you love other people. It's all, it all depends in context what you're talking about. Okay? Um, the, reason, the reason why I think this subject is really important, you know, it wasn't my choice 
to study 1 Corinthians. I go back and forth with me and the group as far as who picks what, who picks what, what book we're going to study. The reason we're studying 1 Corinthians, there were some young brothers in the group who wanted to make sure that we're all unified and that we're, you know, uh, presumably we'll be moving more in the direction of house churches. We're kind of a hybrid, sometimes house churches, sometimes all together. But there's some brothers who, as we're moving more in the direction of house churches and, and we'll be together less frequently altogether, they want to make sure we're all staying on the same page. So let's make sure we nail all the controversial doctrines and we're all, we're all taught them we're all on the same page. Okay, so which, which is the obvious choice of a book that hits more controversial doctrines than anything else? First Corinthians, here we go. Head covering, permanence of marriage, remarriage after divorce, uh, resurrection of the dead, church discipline for those in sin, the Lord's Supper, communion, and, and more things like that too. So it hits a lot of controversial subjects where a lot of churches are not following the historic faith. So that's the reason for doing that. But smack in the middle of that discussion is this, this thing that says, hey, love is the most important thing. Um, Paul says love is the paramount thing. Uh, I want to give, it was an example for Brothers Night on a Wednesday night a, a few months ago. I, we, David and I, I, we, I did something a little different. Douglas Jacoby is an old friend of mine from ICOC background. And there's a church in Athens, Georgia, that invited him to come and speak. And they said, we want you to give a critique of our church and our fellowship of churches and uh, no holds barred. Okay? Basically, tell us exactly what you think. And um, I was amazed, first of all, I was impressed, first of all, that, that any group of Christians would really want to know and would ask that question of somebody else, and also that he would have the nerve to, to step up and to, and to say that. And I said, I really appreciate, and I hope that we can follow that good example of being willing to ask for honest critique. And one of the things that he said in there was, uh, I don't think it was an unfair criticism, I thought it was just an accurate description. He said, you know, in, in this fellowship of churches, wherever I go, I ask people, what are the two greatest commandments in, in the church? Practically speaking, not what are they supposed to be, what are they? And they would say, from, well, those of us from that background would know right off the bat what they were. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the mission of sins. And Matthew 28.18-20, go make disciples of all nations. Baptism and conversion and evangelism and discipleship. Those were things emphasized, which are wonderful things. They are good things. And he was saying these are really good things. However, the most important thing, according to Jesus and according to Paul, is love. Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the most important commands. Everything else hangs on that. And then I turned it around to the brothers in the group and said, okay, now, let's take a good look at ourselves and ask ourselves the questions, the tough questions. In our fellowship, what really, not what are they supposed to be, what really are the most important commands of God? Okay? 
And if you ask an outsider about our group, somebody else, what would they say about us? What would we say about ourselves? What would they say about us? What would you say about yourself? Is it perfect theology? Okay. Is it the early Christians? Is it head covering and modest dress? Is it permanent Samaritan? You know, what is it? What is it that we emphasize the most, really? Okay. There's a tendency for every church group out there ourselves being no exception, is if there's something that you believe which is correct, or you think it is, but that nobody else is following, over time, that percolates to the top and becomes, lo and behold, the most important command of God. Which it just so happens that you've got right and everybody else has wrong. So you can go and look down on everybody else that's out there. Okay? This, this, is, this is endemic to the human race. Satan pulls the same scheme on everybody. So let's not fall into that trap, okay? What really is supposed to be the most important command of God? Love God with our hearts, whole, heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors and self. Paul says the same thing here. He says this is the most important thing. He, and he, he goes to such extremes he says, you know, if I could move a mountain, if I, if I had such miraculous faith that I could move a mountain, if I gave everything to the poor and I, I suffered the most horrible martyr's death, I, I was burned to death in the fire. He just goes through these things. If I could speak in the tongue of men and of angels. He said, but if I didn't have love, it would be nothing. I'd gain nothing. It's no good. Uh, makes a very, very powerful point. So why does this matter to us? Okay. That this needs to be not because we're good at it. Okay. This needs to be because Jesus and Paul say this is the most important thing. You know, on the night before Jesus was crucified, when he's pouring his soul out to the, to, to the apostles and preparing them for what's to happen in the future, he's not lecturing them on theology. Now, believe me, I, I bend over backwards to make sure that what we're teaching to the best of my ability is in line with the historic faith. But the Christian life is to be marked by love being the most important thing, loving God, and, and loving, loving one another, loving our neighbors, and even loving our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and not just focusing on turning the Christian faith into a list of rules and outward things. Uh, John 13. Let's read what Jesus said to the apostles. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, John Chrysostom is talking about this command of Jesus, the importance of love. He says, you know, if you, if, if, if you picture he's in, he's in Constantinople, royal court, 
Everybody's wearing gold. And he says, you know, when everybody's wearing gold, how do you know who the king is? And he says the answer is simple. The king, this king is the guy who's wearing purple. And he's got a crown on his head. Amidst everybody else, that's the king. That's how you tell who the king is. How do you tell who the Christians are? They love God and they love one another. That's how you tell. It's not by their clothing. Okay? It's not by outward things. It's by the love that they have. And that's what Jesus says. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. By the love that you have for one another. Okay? That's going to be the sign. Uh, one of the reasons I, I don't tend to emphasize a lot of teaching on the love of God, because I mentioned this because everybody does, but the problem is, it's like when people talk about faith, we're saved by faith. Well, define faith for me. If faith is just belief, well, no, of course not. Even the demons believe, as it says in James. The biblical definition, we have to reclaim the biblical definition for all these critical terms. It's like a house is being built with bricks. If the bricks are no good, the house is going to collapse. Okay, And the bricks are the words, the concepts. So biblical saving faith involves, from Hebrews chapter 11 to James chapter 2, it involves belief, but it also involves perseverance and obedience to be complete. Seeing something, you know, believing in something you can't see is just part of it. Part of saving faith is all of that. What is the love that Paul is talking about here? What does love mean to most people? Love is a nice, warm feeling. Okay, I'm in love with this person. I love vanilla ice cream, okay? Whatever. I, that's what the most people, it's a nice, warm feeling. But let's apply the biblical definition that Paul uses here and that Jesus uses. When Jesus talks about the love that they need to have, he says, you need to love one another as I have loved you. That's his definition. His definition is not with words, it's with life. Where Jesus teaches us sometimes with words and a lot of times just with his example of his own life of going to the cross. That's, Jesus, that's how Jesus teaches us and why we need to meditate on the life of Christ and follow him. Follow his example. Paul starts off, and the first thing he, he says, and I'm glad I'm reading from the, the New King James here, 1 Corinthians 13, first thing he says, you know, for, for years I, I, was, I was in a church where we're reading from the NIV, um, and it says, love is patient. Love is patient, love is kind. New King James, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love suffers long. Boy, does that sound different. Long-suffering. Love suffers long. Uh, that definitely gives... When I, when I say somebody's love is patient, I'm all, okay, you know, somebody is uh, somebody's supposed to meet me at 12 o'clock. It's 5 after 12. I'm getting a little antsy and I'm getting a little impatient right now, okay? Suffering long. That's another story. Are you willing to suffer long? That's what the love is that Paul is talking about. Jesus demonstrated that. God demonstrates that himself. When he appeared to Moses, Moses wanted to see God's face. He, he wouldn't let him do that. I think it's Exodus 34, where he, he, he 
he speaks the essence of who he is, that he is long-suffering. God is described as the, as the great long-suffering one in, in uh, uh, 1, Peter, 1 Peter 3 in 1921, where he says, you know, the great long-suffering in the days of Noah, that God was suffering, looking at the wickedness on the earth, holding off the flood to prepare the ark. The God is long-suffering one. I think of a picture, I think of, of long-suffering, I think of... Uh, Jacob, who served for seven years for each of his two wives, and he served for another six years after that. And it says they seemed like only a few days because of, of, of the love that he had. So you think, well, he's out having a nice time being, being a shepherd. No, actually, he wasn't. If you read, when he defends himself to Laban, he says, this is what it was like for those 20 years. I was being consumed by heat in the day, and I was being consumed by frost at night. And I was, you know, I was, I was hungry and I was destitute and sleep fled my eyes. We had a miserable existence for 20 years. He was suffering for 20 years and he finally lets Laban, his deceitful uncle, lets him have it to let him know what that's like. That's a picture to me of long suffering. Someone who's long suffering because of love. So I think what we need to do, and I just want to start with the long suffering one. Okay, that, that's a huge one right there. When we talk about love, it's not the ooey-gooey, nice feeling that, we, that we, can, we can psych ourselves into. It's following the footsteps of Jesus of willing to suffer long, to be willing to go on the cross. That's, we have to reclaim the biblical definition of love. Love suffers long, and it's kind. It does not envy it does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own, meaning seeking its own interests. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Okay. Uh, from time to time... David or I will get a call that our happy married couples are having little difficulties with one another, okay? And I'm not looking down at anybody. Uh, when we were young, we had, we had a very rocky road, okay? I have, I'm in no position to throw stones at anybody in terms of, of married life, in terms of being a husband. But this is the place to start right here, is to get your idea about what it means to love your husband or your wife from the scriptures, from Paul's description here, and not from something that, that you picked up from the world or from movies or whatever, not, not some of the shallow, shallow nonsense. So um, um, John 15, 11 to 14, I'm going to close with that. Next time I'll, I'll tackle the question here about, uh, you know, does this passage say that the miraculous gifts disappeared here or not? That's, that's a, that's, I'm thinking, thinking this is a good place to stop on that before we, we pick that up the next time. First, uh, John chapter 15, verses 11 to 14. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you have love for one another as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for him for, for his friends. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. So that's what it means to love God according to Jesus. Amen.